Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to our last in our series of Theology Condensed. This is our last week in Exodus 34. And over the past few weeks, we've been unpacking God's name. It's been a really exciting journey, hasn't it? All of our teaching, as we've said every week, is based in the book by John Mark Comer called God Has a Name. And if you haven't already purchased it, I suggest uh, you get it or borrow a copy because it is well worth um, reading. God's name describes who he is, a God who wants to be known, who reveals himself to us. Well, after this session, uh, you can click on the Zoom link that's in the chat at the moment uh, on opportunity to join us, a, a few of us who gather together to, to talk about, about the session, about thoughts that we have, an opportunity to ask any questions that you might have that result from, from this um, session this evening. We are in the whole of verse 7 this evening. It says this, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So if you do want to uh, join us with Zoom, then I encourage you to do so when we finish on the, the link, as I say, in the chat. But when I think about that verse that we're going to consider this evening, I think it would be good to start by praying together. So shall we pray? Father God, we thank you so much for your word, your living word that speaks to our hearts, that speaks to our minds, that speaks to our souls. And Father, we want to hear what you have to say to us this evening. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and uh, fill us now as, we, as I speak and as we listen, that we might hear your words. And that, Father, it wouldn't just be an academic exercise that we seek to understand with our heads, but that you would do a work in our hearts too that we would respond to you. Father, we thank you for these amazing verses in Exodus. Pray that you would open our eyes to see new truths about how wonderful you are as we explore this message this evening. So be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So shall we uh, read Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7 again for the last time in our little series? It says this, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God is gracious and compassionate, abounding in love. And yet, the Bible says he punishes the children and their children for the parents' sin. That really doesn't make sense, does it? Well, let me start with some good news. It doesn't mean quite what it sounds like, not the way that we read it anyway in English. Isn't that a relief, especially if you're a parent this evening? Kay, you messed up. I feel really sorry for your kids. But the bad news is that we don't get to pick and choose scripture. The Bible says in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and we don't get to pick and choose the bits that we want to read and the bits that we want to leave out. We have to take the whole of scripture, everything that it says. But if we do that, if we're prepared to take the hard bits with the easy bits, the good bits with the tough bits, what we find in there, in the scriptures, is that God is much more amazing than we could ever imagine. And I think that's what hopefully we'll discover this evening. 
So what we're going to do is work through this uh, verse line by line, the most difficult part, really, of these verses that we've been looking at in Exodus. So let's start with maintaining love to thousands. Well, here we're being reminded of God's love. But this time when we read it, we read that he's maintaining his love. The word here means to protect or guard or watch over. It's like Yahweh is a security guard, if you like. He wants to make sure that we receive his love through all our failures and our mistakes, through the thick and thin, if you like, of life. He's protecting. He's so protected over his love for us. But not just you, not just me. He maintains love to thousands. His love is limitless. It's unbend. It's, it's unswerving. His love is not just for a select few of us. It's for thousands. It's limitless. But then he goes on to say he's forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Well, forgiveness is a word that we don't just hear in the New Testament. It's used over 600 times before we ever get to the cross. Dispels that argument that the Old Testament is always all about an angry God. The word, the Hebrew word here that um, we have here, forgive, literally means to lift up, to carry, or to take away. I'm sure some of you, when you think about that terminology, it takes you straight on to thinking about Jesus, doesn't it? John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what does God say here? He says that he forgives wickedness rebellion and sin well wickedness here means any sort of wrongdoing rebellion well that's a legal word for breaking the law and sin well it means simply to miss the mark a bit like an archer with a target these three words if you take them all together tell us that God forgives sin in all its shapes and sizes it's not just that God forgives but it's that God is forgiving Listen to these words, wonderful words in Micah. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You'll be faithful to Jacob and show your love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago beautiful verse God forgives God is forgiving it's his character it's who he is it's he can't help himself it's in his very nature to forgive he eagerly forgives he delights to forgive but as we read on there's another angle isn't there yet yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished another translation of this phrase would be who will by no means clear the guilty what we find here is that, yes, God is forgiving by nature, as we've been saying, but he is also a just God. He doesn't let the guilty off the hook. God is just. We tend to cringe, don't we, when we think about the fact that God punishes. In fact, it is it's terrifying to think that God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. But the truth is that God's justice is a good thing because God's end goal in a, a world is a world without sin. His agenda is to set the world free from injustice. So it's not about payback or vendetta. It's about justice. So think about it. No drug dealers exploiting young lives. No cruel dictators oppressing their people. No abuse, no war, no shootings, no violence, no racism, 
no anxiety, no betrayal, no evil at all. That's what God wants. That's what God is looking for. Isn't that the kind of world that we all dream of? Isn't that what we all want? We all want justice, don't we? Deep down inside, that's what we all want. Every time we see injustice, we long for somebody to do something about it. And that's what God's justice is all about. It's about healing. It's about renewal of the world. But thinking back, as we said in our slow to anger session, he longs for us to respond to him. He longs for us to repent. He's waiting. He's delaying that time when he will deal with sin, when he will um, um, send out his justice. Right now, God's justice is like a trickle, if you like. But one day it will turn into a river and then an ocean that will cover the world. When Jesus comes again, evil will be brought to its knees forever. Because Yahweh is forgiving, we don't have to cower or fear the dread of Jesus' return. We can take our wickedness, our rebellion, our sin to the cross and let Jesus deal with it there. That is the beautiful gospel that we believe, isn't it? But I know right now you're still looking at that next line and thinking, but what about the children? So let's get on to he punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents. Well, what could this possibly mean? It can't possibly mean, as we've said, what it sounds like at face value, at least not in our translation from the Hebrew. And here's why, because Moses makes the exact opposite point in Deuteronomy 24. He says this in verse 16. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. And if you look at a verse in Jeremiah, there are other verses in the Bible, but Jeremiah 32, 18 to 19 says this, you show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct. And their, as their deeds deserve. What's God saying here? How, how do we make sense of holding all these verses together? We always must read scripture in the light of scripture. Well, here's a, a few thoughts that we can discuss further on our Zoom discussion. But let's, um, firstly, we can say that parents' sin has consequences for their children. Parents' sin has consequences for their children. Let's take probably a bit of an extreme example, if you like. But if you think about parents who are drug dealers, they get arrested and put into prison, and then the children are left without a family and perhaps end up in the care system, deeply affected because of the, because of the actions of their parents. Or if you think about something like greed that maybe leads to gambling, and a parent gambles away the money that should be being spent on the family. It leads to poverty. It leads to the family being without food. The children are affected by the greed of that parent. God doesn't punish the children for the sins of their fathers in that sense. It's rather that the father's sin takes its natural course, affecting, infecting, corrupting even the hearts of the children. We all know that, don't we? That parents' actions have consequences on the future of their children. I think for parents who love their children, this is perhaps one of the most sobering texts that we can face in the Bible. 
because there's a warning, isn't there, and a challenge here for us as parents. None of us will want to pass on the dysfunctions, the sins that we have in our own lives to our children, would we? So the most important gift, if you like, that we can give to our children is in fact our character. It is our character, who we are, that will shape our children. So there are consequences for the way we as, our, as parents choose to live. Secondly, we can say that sin can run in families. Sin is, a, is like DNA. It's like the color of your eyes or that quirky personality that's passed from one generation to another. One generation's sin can often become the next generation's sin and then the next. The truth is that a baby doesn't come as a blank canvas. They come into a world with baggage from the family that they're born into. Even today, when you think about our individualistic society, we, we still use that, um, that phrase, don't we? Like father, like son, or that awful phrase, like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But the more we let sin get the upper hand in our lives, the more our children will suffer for it. It's a contagious disease that sadly can get passed on to our children. But thirdly, we can also say that Yahweh will continue to punish sin in each generation. For the Israelites, this meant that maybe just as God punished their parents for um, the sin of idolatry, so the children would be punished for that same sin. If they worshipped idols, then they too would be punished. God will punish you in the same way he punished your father if you commit the same sin. This is simply because God doesn't change and he doesn't change his mind about sin. In our world, right and wrong have become quite fluid and flexible, haven't they? They're not an absolute anymore, but not in God's world. It's always the same from one generation to the next. God is faithful and he will punish sin in each generation. Now, what will hopefully help us to unpack this a bit more is if we go on to the next line, which says to the third and fourth generation. Well, Interesting, the word generation isn't there in the Hebrew. It was added by English readers to make sense of the awkwardness of the Hebrew, if you like. Um, scholars point out that this, these two verses in Exodus have a kind of poetic rhythm. And whatever comes after the word thousands should come after the words third and fourth. So maintaining love to thousands of generations. And he punishes the children to the third and fourth generations. Uh, more literally, perhaps we could translate it, maintaining love to thousands, punishing the children to the third and fourth. It might be helpful if we have a look at one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 um, to help us make this a bit clearer. If um, In verse 5 it says, You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's a bit like a pair of scales or a seesaw, if you like. On one side is mercy, the other side is justice, and they're way out of balance. The scales are weighed always heavily in, on the side of mercy. So God punishes to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, yes, but he maintains um, love to thousands of generations. Justice, kind of one, two, three, four generations, but mercy, one, two, three, five, ten, fifteen thousands of generations. 
God is weighted to mercy. Yes, of course he deals with sin. He has to. He's a just God. But he's wired towards mercy. James says in in his letter, mercy triumphs over judgment. Yahweh is just, but he's also forgiving. He can't help himself, if you like. He has to show mercy. When they come head to head, mercy wins every time. Be helpful, wouldn't it, to look at a, a story in scripture that teaches more about this tension, this tug of war, if you like, between mercy and justice that we've just been looking at. So we're going to look at um, Numbers 14 this evening. It's one of the few places in the Bible where this second half of this verse in, in verse 7 is quoted. You'll, you'll remember the story, I'm sure. Israel's finally come to the edge of Cana, Canaan, where they've been heading. And when they arrive, they discover that the, the land is occupied the, by the Amalekites. And what they also discover is that they're giants and they're frightened. So the people refuse to, to cross the Jordan River and they, be, they, they rebel again against Moses. And they say they want a new leader to take them back to Egypt. What we see in this story is a deeper problem. What they lack is a trust in Yahweh. They don't really believe that the God that is, they've been following is gracious and compassionate. They don't really believe that he's like a parent who cares for their children Putting it bluntly, if you like, the root of not trusting God is sin. We talk about temptation, don't we? We talk about lack of self-control. But all of these things really, in the end, are sin because they're about us choosing to not trust in God and God's character. It goes right back to Adam and Eve. Let's go back to the, the garden with Adam and Eve as the first example. There's a tree of life on one hand, a tree of, God, of good and evil on the other. The second one, God says, is off limits. But do you remember the snake? He says to Eve, to Eve you'll not surely die. He's implying to Eve, you, you can't trust God. He's saying God must have an ulterior motive here. He, he doesn't have your good in mind. The point is that right from the beginning of time, humans are lousy at trusting God. We have Eve's DNA running through our bodies, through our blood. We've all made the wrong choices because we don't trust God and who he says he is. This is exactly here in this story what the Israelites are doing. And of course, the result isn't good. Yahweh says to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Do you know what? Moses' uh, response here is absolutely fascinating. Rather than agreeing with God... Um, and I think I probably would have um, been like Moses, um, have been more like God and said, let's get rid of these troublesome nation. Moses responds quite differently. He says, but God, then the Egyptians will hear about it. They'll hear about what you've done. Moses here in this moment, he's, he's got a hold on God's character. And he's, he's saying, God, don't forget who you are. Don't forget your name. Don't forget about your reputation. And then he quotes um, Exodus 34 back to God. He says, now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you, you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. 
And then he says, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Moses is pleading with God to be his character, to be forgiving. And God immediately says, I forgive them as you have asked me to. You see, when it comes to mercy, God is right there, ready and willing to forgive. You don't have to twist God's arm to forgive. He is always willing. If this sounds familiar, then it is, because this is the second time, isn't it, that um, God was going to destroy Israel and he changes his mind. And just as a little aside here, because we're not talking about prayer, but what an, an encouragement to keep praying to the God who wants to interact with us. The mystery that God listens to our prayers and responds as we pray to him. Just listen as, as we go on in the passage. It, it says this. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them into the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies, will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. Notice Yahweh, yes, he's forgiving. They're still his people. Mercy comes out on top. But at the same time, an entire nation ended up dying in the wilderness because of their sin. That word, nevertheless, it's a brutal word, isn't it? God waits for a new generation to come up through the ranks. Yes, the children indeed suffer for the parents' sin. They wander around uh, for years in the wilderness, in the wilderness because of their mum and dads. But the point that comes out of this is that God is forgiving, yes, but sin isn't. Sin is not. Sin is unforgiving. Sin is merciless and it's not compassionate. Our sin has consequences. And the reality is and the sober truth is that we miss out on blessing irretrievably when we sin. We can end up like Israel, forgiven, yes, but lost in a desert wasteland. Now, a rather obvious but difficult example of this is an affair. If someone has an affair and cheats on their partner, they betray their family and they destroy trust. Now, they, they may well come back, truly repent, break off the affair, come crawling back to their family and to God. And there's no doubt that if their repentance is genuine, then God will forgive. That's what he promises. But the truth is that forever after, that um, family will be picking up the broken pieces that have, been, uh, that have happened as a result of that sin. The marriage relationship and the children will suffer. Doesn't sound very appealing then, does it, to treat, cheat on your partner? In fact, most people wouldn't plan to do that, would they? But it happens, and I think it happens because we don't take sin seriously enough. As Christine was sharing this morning, we need to understand the gravity of sin, the weight of sin, means that we miss out on blessing. We don't want to be like the Israelites who stare over the waters of the Jordan and throw away their blessing. We're wrestling here with a tension between mercy and justice. But I hope you're still with me. This is heavy stuff, but here comes the best bit, Jesus. 
we find the solution to this tension in Jesus, a humble character, um, carpenter from a backwater of Nazareth. John says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, an allusion back to Exodus 34. John goes on to say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a reference back to the ancient animal sacrifices. For more than a thousand years, the way God dealt with sin was through the shedding of blood. An animal, usually a lamb, would be brought to the temple. You'd place your hand on the lamb's head and the priests would sacrifice the lamb on the altar in your place. You sin, but the lamb dies in your place. It was a signpost pointing towards Jesus. The Old Testament speaks of the temporary nature of these sacrifices that the entire system would one day be replaced by something so much better. What the people began to understand through these sacrifices was something called substitutionary atonement. The idea that someone can die in your place. Someone else can take the punishment for your crime. That was a lamb in those days until Jesus, the Lamb of God, came. Romans 3 teaches us, Verse 25, God presented Christ as a, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus' death is the solution to that ancient dilemma that we've been trying to get our heads around this evening of God's mercy and God's justice. The cross expresses God's mercy. He forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. But it's also an expression of his justice. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's the just and he's the justifier. In this moment at the cross, we see what our God is like. Here at the cross is the ultimate expression of the character of God. And here, this tension is resolved. It's God's nature to show mercy and forgive, but it's also God's nature to deal with sin. In the cross, these two things are finally brought together. We sin, Jesus dies. Jesus dies, we live in relationship with the Father. This is the amazing kingdom of God that we are invited into. Often God's demanded sacrifice, think back to Artemis, the Greek God, who made the king sacrifice his own daughter. Yahweh, the one true God, doesn't demand that we give up our children for human sacrifice. No, he gave up his only son for you and for me. Well, we're nearly there. There's so much more we could say, isn't there? Um, but to pull this whole mini-series together, I'd like to take you on to the next verse in Exodus 34. It's verse 8, and it says this. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. The only fitting response to this kind of God that we've been getting to know over the last six weeks is worship. It's not singing a few songs, worship, but a life, a life that's orientated around wonder and awe at the nature of this incredible God. 
We've talked for the last six weeks, really, about how God responds to us. But I thought it would be really good to finish by thinking about how we respond to him. Well, we worship. We don't worship to gain his favour or get on his good side. We're already on his good side. We don't worship to appease his anger because he's slow to anger. We don't worship because we hope he might just help us out if we do. No, he's abounding in love and faithfulness. We worship Yahweh because he is Yahweh. This is our God. What else can we do but worship? And so what we find is Moses, after God has revealed his name to Moses, there's Moses flat on his face in worship. But then he gets back up and he makes the most amazing request to God. Lord, he says, if I found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Moses is asking God, please stay in relationship with us. Stay in relationship with Israel. And not only does Yahweh promise to go with them, but they eventually become the stage or they are the stage on which his story gets played out to the world. Isn't that amazing? You see, just as the Israelites were, so we are called to bear God's name, the name that we have been exploring over the last six weeks. We are the people of God. We've been given his name. We've been invited into his family and adopted into his family, given his name. What God wants from us is a living, breathing people who put that name on display to the world. He wants us to show the world what he is like. He wants us by the way we speak and the way we live to demonstrate his name to the world. A people who are godly are like the God that they worship. So God calls us to be a people who are compassionate, a people who are gracious a people who are slow to anger, a people who are abounding in love and faithfulness, a people who live in the tension of mercy and justice. So as we reflect on Yahweh, let's remember this, that wherever we go this week, wherever we set our feet, we are carriers of his name. So you're not just going to the shops, you're carrying God's name not just chairing another meeting on Monday morning. You're carrying his name. You're not just walking the dog and chatting with your friends. You're carrying his name. You're not just bringing up your children. You're carrying his name. You're not just whatever you want to insert in there. You're carrying his name. It's been an exciting journey, hasn't it? Exploring Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, looking at the name of our God, our amazing Yahweh. We have a challenge, don't we, to live as the people of God, bearing that name. Shall we pray together? Father God, we thank you that you chose to reveal your name to us. Thank you for all that you've taught us about your name, about your character, about who you are. And Father, we sense that challenge this evening to live as people who own that name, who bear that name. Father, take us, we pray. Mould us more and more into the image of your son. 
that we might be those who bear your name, those who are compassionate, those who are gracious, those that are slow to get angry, those who are abounding in love. May we this week be those who bear your name, who show your mercy. Thank you, God, for showing us that you are a merciful God, that you are weighted to mercy. Thank you that you're a forgiving God, that you've forgiven our sins, that we are in a right relationship with you. Help us to understand the seriousness of sin. Help us, Lord, not to allow sin in our lives. Help us to live as those like you who don't want sin, that we long for justice, for righteousness. Father, help us to live as people of mercy. Help us to live as those who bear your name, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.